1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading 12 through 23. Now, if Messiah is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Messiah, whom he did not raise up, if, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Messiah is not risen. And if Messiah is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Messiah have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Messiah, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Messiah the first fruits, afterwards those who have Messiahs at his coming. Those who are Messiahs at his coming. That passage, I'm sure that passage is familiar to most of you, correct? Anyone never heard, well, don't, doesn't, is not a resonating with you, 1 Corinthians 15? I think we've all <coughs> heard that before. It's, it's, you know, it's like um, some other of Paul's writings. If you look at, you know, the way he writes, there are these, you know, sentences that go on and on and on and on, these very long sentences that he writes. <coughs> and um, this is kind of one of them. This is this big philosophical argument that he makes, you know, and commentators, you know, b biblical commentators like to get into the details of, you know, this is a, and they use big words, you know, this is this type of logical, philosophical statement, the modus this and modus that and, and so forth. But the bottom line is he ends up saying there in verse 20, um, he's talking about the, the resurrection, the raising of the dead. And, you know, I read that and certainly many years ago, or before I was a believer, just raised in a, in a in a conservative Jewish home, you know, I think, I mean, how many times, there's actually, if, if you count, there's at least 10 times he mentions raised from the dead. He mentions resurrection three times. All this, you know, raised from the dead, raised from the dead, resurrection. And to me, that's all Christian talk, you know. That's all Christian stuff, man. And so, but the thing is, a couple things, I wanna, I'm going to point out something to you, but also recommend you go back a few weeks, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, you can go to our website and listen to the message by Ira Brower that he spoke on the day we call Yom HaTekiah, the day of the rising, the blast. Tekiah, I'm sorry. Not Tekiah, it's actually it's a different word. It sounds like Tekiah, but it's the rising. Um, but also, this, this idea of, <coughs> of raising and resurrection is a very Jewish concept that I, that I didn't really know about. And, you know, um, there's a, a prayer book. Actually, I think Alan brought one today. You have it with you. Stephanie, your, your prayer book in there, there's a, there's a daily prayer called the Amidah. Anyone ever heard of the Amidah? Anyone not heard of the Amidah? Maybe one or two, so I'll say it for a few. It's the standing prayer. It's the 18, 18 prayers that people give during, uh, during the, these, these times called the Shimona Esrei, which is, is, means 18. And the second one, the second, uh, the second prayer in the Shimona Esrei is, uh, talks about God's greatness. Greater you, O Lord. And I just want to read, read a little something from there. This is uh, the blessing that Jews everywhere say about, about God, the greatness of God in the, in the Amidah, in the Shemun Esrei. It says, You are mighty eternally, O Lord. 
you are the reviver of the dead. You are abundantly able to save. And that word save there, that's Yeshua. Yeshua is, is how it is. That same word from, for the name of uh, Jesus. The one who sustains the living with kindness, who revives the dead with abundant mercy, who supports the fallen, who heals the sick, who releases the confined, and who maintains his faith to those asleep in the dust. In other words, dead, reviver of the dead. Who is like you, O master of mighty deeds, and who is comparable to you, O king, who causes death and restores life and makes salvation sprout? So that's pretty common. I mean, this is a very, this is not a, again, this is not Christian talk here. I say, Chris, I'm not disparaging. My point is this is a very thoroughly Jewish idea. And I think um, it's important to know that I was meeting, I had a meeting a few weeks ago with a gentleman who is, um, he's a marketing director for a local hospice here in town. And he had called our office because there was a, a Jewish lady, actually a Messianic Jewish lady who was in a hospice here locally. And she had he had visited her, and then she had mentioned her, her beliefs and so forth, and he, he tried to find somebody uh, to go, go visit her. And so he had called the office, and I went and visited her in the hospice, and then uh, he and I got together. We wanted to meet just to make a connection. And So I met this gentleman, real nice guy. He was actually a, um, he's done a lot of things in his life, and he's now currently with this hospice, but he uh, had graduated from Denver Seminary many years, even before Chaim was there, I think, believe it or not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They were, anyway, I won't go there. A little bit, tiny bit before. Um, and so uh, he, he was just talking to me and asking me kinds of questions about Messianic Judaism and Jewish this and Jewish that. And he, he kind of confessed. He said, yeah, I got my degree from Denver. I got my degree in counseling, and I took some Greek. But whew, I didn't have to take Hebrew, fortunately, he said. And I just nodded, and he said, you know, I don't really have a good, he said, I really don't know the Old Testament very well either, he said. You know, but I know the New Testament pretty well. And so we started talking about that. And he said, he, he brought up, he said, you know, but he was, it was interesting. He said, we had a, a Jewish guy come to speak at our church here recently. And he was talking, there was something that he was mentioning about um, when Peter sees uh, Elijah and Moses and Yeshua that time. And uh, there was something that he wanted to build them some tents or something. He said, what, what was that about again? And I said, well, that's, uh, he's, talking about a sukkah. Are you familiar with what a sukkah is? You know what a sukkot is? Yeah, yeah. this guy who knows the, old, knows the New Testament well said, no, I don't know, don't know what sukkot is. I said, oh, okay. And, and uh, you know, I, then I asked him, I kind of went to this verse that we're looking at today, and I said, well, let me ask you this then. <clears throat> I said, well, first about sukkot, I said, you know, look at Zechariah 14. It says that when the Lord comes back. You probably heard that passage that he will come and he will stand with his feet on the Mount of Olives. Oh, yeah, I've heard that before. And we all hear about that. And I said, and then a few verses later, it says that all those who are still remain will go up to Jerusalem and, and celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. That's Sukkot. I said, maybe, and, and I kind of poked at him. I said, you might want to find out what that's about. Because, you know, I said, I said, it says a little bit later that if you don't come, you don't get your rain. There's all kinds of things that happen for those that aren't there. I said, she might want to come and you know, celebrate with us sometime to find out what that's about. And um, I mean, we were having fun with it. But I, and also, I went to this verse here in 1 Corinthians 15, and I said, I said, how about this, this place here? You've heard that you know, Yeshua was raised from the dead, right? And he was our first fruits, right? I said, what's that mean? What's that all about? He said, well, first fruits. I mean, he was the best, you know, and, and so forth, and first fruits. I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, first fruits, certainly the, the 
couple dozen or so times in the Bible that first fruits is mentioned in both the, the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. Um, a few times it meant it's that idea of the best. You know, in Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel, they bring their, you know, they bring the firstlings. That's the same word there. And it's, it is the idea of, it's not like the number one, it's the best. But the majority, the more, the lion's share of, of references to first fruits has to do with the, the feast of first fruits. I said, you know what the feast of first fruits is? Again, no, I really don't. And so I just took the opportunity, and not, I mean, not, not, wasn't not to pick on the guy, but just to kind of explain our position that, you know, it's important in, in, in the type of ministry that we do or understand, in, in any, actually not even just our ministry, but in terms of being a believer, that the, the continuity of the Bible. We talk about a lot from Genesis to Revelation. Otherwise, we kind of see it as that's the Jewish book, this is the Christian book, and, you know, resurrection and stuff is here, and things are over here. And no, no, it's one continual book. And the truth is, if you don't really, if you, you can't say, I know the New Testament well, if you don't know the whole Bible well, because there's so much in there, little things like first fruits. Now, does he completely misunderstand what 1 Corinthians 15 is about? No, he understands what it's about, even not knowing what first fruits is about. And we can too. But I want to take a, a moment just to look at what that is, that, that, and Michael mentioned it today, this idea of first fruits. Again, it doesn't necessarily change our understanding, but I think it gives us the foundation upon which we can real, think about what, or understand what Paul is talking about here, this idea of first fruits. So if you want to f- turn your Bibles, I know you're in Corinthians, or maybe you're in Corinthians, you can go back to, um, anybody know where to go for first fruits, other than the rabbi and Michael? <laughs> Leviticus, yeah. Leviticus 23 is a place to go. Uh, that's sort of the compacted area where all of the, the feasts of the Lord, the Moadim, the, the, the cycles, the festivals of the Lord are, are, are housed, if you will. There are other places in the Bible, obviously, references to them here in 1 Corinthians. But Leviticus 23 is the, the place to go for what are called God's appointed times or his Moadim. So I'm just going to read a little bit here from Leviticus 23. And I'm going to start in verse 9. The first beginning of this uh, portion, um, you know, God's saying, speak, tell, you know, telling Moses, speak to the children of Israel, tell them these things. This is what they're going to do when they enter the land. And the first thing he talks about is the Sabbath. You're going to keep the Sabbath. And then he talks about the Passover. And then here in verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land that I am giving you and you reap its harvest. And I like this here, first of all, it's just, there's no guesswork. He's not saying, if you all make it to the land, you know, he's saying, when you get there. And not when, not when, if you, you know, when you get there, and if it just so happens that there's something to eat there. No, he says, when you get there and when you reap. So I thought that was kind of cool. So when you enter the land that I'm giving you, FYI, not your land, I'm giving it to you, and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. That's the word omer. Michael mentioned omer, and there's all kinds of question of what's an omer is it a measurement is it it's the it's the sheaf the first fruit the first of the harvest the early harvest and he shall he shall raise this is the priest the priest shall raise the sheaf before the lord that you find that you may find acceptance on the day after the sabbath the priest shall raise it on the day when you raise the sheaf uh and just fyi if some of you are familiar with this you can get all caught up in verse 11 that's the big controversy as to when do we do this which sabbath and so forth but let's look at what's obvious in the text, okay? We're going to stay with what's obvious in 1 Corinthians 15 also. But on the day when you raise the sheaf, you shall offer a lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And he goes on to say, in addition to bringing the first fruits, he goes through all these different offerings here. And he says something key here in verse 14. He says, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears until that very day, until 
you have brought your, the offering of your God. In other words, and this is something he says that will be lasting throughout your generations and all your settlements, uh, very specific, not just your nation, but your, your, your places where you lay down, basically. And the idea here is that you're putting God first. Okay, you do it. You don't eat anything. You don't eat any bread, meaning you didn't take the f- stuff and make the wheat where you could make the bread. You don't do any of that until the very day until you brought that offering to God. And verse 15 says, And from the day after the Sabbath, from the day on which you bring that sheaf of the elevation offering, you shall count off seven weeks, and they shall be complete. Um, this is where we get, well, I'll keep going here. You shall count until the day after the, 70, the, 70th, or the seventh Sabbath, so 49 days, 50 days, then you shall present an offering of new grain. This new grain is uh, Shavuot, Pentecost. Pentecost? I thought that was another Christian thing. No, 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 that's Shavuot. This is where it is, right here, okay, in Acts 2. So you read Acts, you better go back here and read Leviticus first to understand what's going on, why they were there, what they were doing. And this is the time that we're in right now, um, as Michael mentioned, this counting of the Omer. Um, actually, Alan gave me a little magazine today, a, a Jewish publication, and it's talking about the counting of the Omer. Now, where I grew up, uh, I never did the counting of the Omer. Typically, that's more of a, it's been, his, I think, traditionally more of an orthodox kind of uh, very religious kind of thing that you count the Omer. I never counted the Omer. I didn't know what it was, but that's, that's what... That's what uh, Jewish communities all over the world, all over this country, they're doing today in synagogues, you know, within 10 miles of here where we are, I'm sure, they're counting the Omer. And there's, there's different traditions that go on with that, but the basic idea is they count the Omer. Does anyone know what today, what today is? How many days we're, we're into it? See, that, that, that's a trick question. See, I have a friend, Orthodox friend, and he tricked me with that yesterday because you're not supposed to say it. You're supposed to say, well, yesterday was because today you need to count it. And if you say it, you've blown it. So, oh, goodness, you know. So he tricked me with that. But, but it's true. Today is the, you know, you would say today is 32 days. That is seven weeks and four days of the Omer. That's how they say it. So there's all kinds of ways. But anyways, the point is they count it. But what's going on? Let, again, let's, we can get into the details. And believe me, there are details because there's a not, not a lot that's necessarily said about how you do it here. And as Chaim has taught, if you've ever been around you know, where things are very obvious in the scriptures, hey, we just blow by it, but when there's a question and there's some discrepancy and how do you do it exactly, how do you wave it? Do you wave it like this? Do you wave it like this? You know, I read one commentator said, you make the sign of the cross. I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. But the point is that's where people jump in and want to say, well, this is, I know this, I know exactly what they do, and this is where, this is where we jump in and give the, all, all the things here. But what's going on? The big idea here is that the picture I want, to, I want you to get here is that you're going into the land that God gave you, and God's saying, look, there's going to be a harvest, and you take the first harvest. This is the early harvest. You wave it before him. You acknowledge him for giving it to you. But this idea of first fruits implies something. Kind of like when you're, if you've ever seen like the finish line of a marathon, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting, and then that one, you know, person from any one of a number of African countries, you know, <laughs> who's about this high, you know, comes through about three hours and 30 minutes later, and then everybody, you know, but the point is you see that person come through, you know more are coming. It's not like the thing's over. The point is first fruits implies that there's something first and there's more to come. And that's, what, that's the big picture here is that, that this is a waiting time, an in-between time. And the reality is we, we have a hard time, at least I do, um, relating with this idea. A lot of the imagery in the Bible is agricultural, agrarian. We talk about the vine. I mean, Study about the vine and the branches. You want to have, as Chaim says, smoke coming out of your ears. Study viticulture. You know what viticulture is? It's, it's the, you know, the, the raising grapes. 
You want to know what John 15 is talking about? You want to know a little deeper, man? Study viticulture. You know, I had to write a paper on that one one time. Believe me, I learned more about viticulture than I knew existed. The point is there's a lot of things agriculturally that I don't think we quite grasp. And I don't even quite grasp this, but I, I wanted just to look at First Fruits, what this is about, to get a bigger picture. Because, you know, I, is anybody garden in here? Like, f- f- yeah, fruit? I saw your pot. It looked nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like the idea. It's very romantic for me, quite honestly. I mean, the I- and here's the, the Jewish side of me. Just the thought of free vegetables is really the part, <laughs> the part that excites me. They are not free. The funny part is they're not free. I probably spent 100 bucks putting this garden together, and I've got like this you know, tiny sprout, and then if it doesn't come up, which, you know, they're looking okay right now. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got rabbits and stuff, and, you know, anyways. The point is I will quickly turn. <laughs> what's the trouble? I know. The po- There's too many rabbits in Colorado. Um, where I'm from, they're deer, but here it's rabbits and coyotes. But uh, the point is, I quickly turn from a, a farmer to a you know, consumer because I'll just go to King Super and you know, run down the, uh, the aisle there in the produce, and that's where I'm going to get my, my produce. So I don't think about having to thank God for this first one, thinking that there's more to come and hoping that there's rain for Pete's sake. I, every day, you know, our kids, we water the garden. We just turn the water faucet on and, you know, it's there. It's piped in. When I don't have this, f- so ingrained in our thinking is not necessarily this thought of having to wait on the Lord or to thank Him for the first fruits that it's even in the ground that more is going to come. I and mean, this whole this idea kind of escapes us sometimes. But that's what this is. This is the picture that we have today in this passage from First Corinthians 15. This idea of counting, in essence, waiting, and it's it's in a sense it's primarily what we just do just about all the time. I mean, right now, today, uh, for a lot of people, is graduation. You know, this is college graduation right now. Once you get out of school, you think, oh, yeah, that's right. There used to be a thing called summer break and all that stuff. But there are these sort of little moments, you know, all throughout our our lives and all throughout the year. Oh, this is graduation. It's an event. And then we're waiting until the next thing, which is maybe summer vacation. And we're waiting for the next thing that maybe is Memorial Day for me because then the pool opens, right? And then, okay, but then... Oh, I used to, my heart would sink when I'd be watching TV as a kid and the back-to-school special, like, oh, no, back-to-school. But the point is we're waiting. These, this is a, this whole idea of Omer. It's not just valid during this time of the year. This brings it to our mind. But the truth is we're continually waiting. We're continually waiting. And the question I want to pose to you here at the outset is how are you waiting? We talk about waiting a lot here. How, how are you spending your time counting, or do you? Or do you just sort of think that your life is taking place at those peaks and nothing else is going on in between? God's not there. He's not promising anything in the future. It's just, okay, there's something else I can thank him for, and then waiting. And then there's something else and so forth. You know, my question then is, how, how is it that you're waiting? I've got some good news for you today, by the way. Everybody, I'm glad you asked, Diane. For everybody in here, if, you're, if you hear me right here, anyone in here, is going to get $25,000. Every one of you, yeah. You're going to get twenty five. I'm going to give you $25,000. Okay? Hold on. There, there, there's, there are some details. There's some small print. You're going to get it, okay? You're going to get it. Um, not today, though, but you're going to get it. You're here. Not only that, Anybody that's here next week and all the way through the end of the year, the last Shabbat of this year, is also going to get $25,000, okay? Guaranteed. But again, 
You're not necessarily going to get it right now. You're not necessarily going to get it at the end of the year, but you're going to get it one day, okay? But you're going to get it, okay? How does that message sound to you? Pretty excited? How many of you are going to go out and look at some new cars today? Anybody going to plan their summer vacation? Look at some remodeling projects, go to Home Depot with your, with your spouse, or just look at, hey, what do I want to do, redo my kitchen or whatever? Maybe pay off some bills. What's that? Tell them to see me. They can see me. I'm going to give it to you. It's guaranteed. I'm going to give it to you. You know, the truth is, I think that's the way a lot of us, and again, I'll point it at me, uh, kind of tend to view our faith. The Messiah is coming back. He's coming back, you know. He's coming back. You know, how many people are you going to go tell about my deal, right? But that's the way we treat our faith quite often. You know, he's coming back. We know it. <clears throat> We've had that moment, maybe that deliverance from Egypt, just like here in Leviticus 23, whatever. We believe Yeshua is the Messiah, and we know he's the first fruits, and he's coming back. And that's where it ends. But we're, we're, the truth is we're in that waiting period right now. And the, the sad thing is, again, not only do we often, I think, view our faith like that, treat our faith like that, Others do as well. Others kind of caricature it that way. Uh, they make fun of it that way. I was watching a, a, a YouTube video of a rabbi who is in Jerusalem, and he was being interviewed at the Western Wall by a pastor, and the pastor, and they were talking, and the Western Wall is behind him, and this little rabbi is there, and uh, they're talking about different things, and this rabbi basically is being very cordial, but he's explaining, like, this is why, you know, you, you believe in Yeshua, and, and, and this is what Judaism says, and you believe this way, and this is what Judaism says, and he's kind of making this demarcation line to try to separate the two beliefs. And at the end of the conversation, he's just hammering this pastor with, you know, you believe in Yeshua, and so when you believe, you know, we believe in Messiah also, but we believe Messiah will bring peace. Where's the peace? Where's this? Where's that? The other. And the pastor says, well, not now, but it's coming, you know. And the rabbi says, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to prove to you right here and now that I'm the Messiah, okay? He says, I will do anything, any miracle you ask me, I'll do it. Just, just you name it. So the pastor, standing, he looks behind him at the wall. He says, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you raise, this, raise up this temple? The rabbi says, fine, no problem. I'll do it when I come back, you know? <laughs> he wasn't being rude necessarily, but clearly he was being a bit, snide in the way he was presenting the pastor's faith. You know? I'll do anything you want when I come back, right? All right, let me, let me go back to my announcement, my $25,000. Same thing. So everything is the same. Here's the difference. I'm going to give you 10000 today. I mean, it's going to be in your hand. 10000 before you walk out today. And everybody that comes next week and all through the end of the year, you're going to have ten grand in your hand. And I'm bringing the rest of the fifteen. Okay? Let that sink in. Try to put yourself in that position for a minute. Think about it. I'm sorry to tease you, but think about you're really going to get $10,000 in your hand today. Promise of 25 is still there, but you're getting 10 today. How do you feel? Do you feel any different than you did before? If you can let your mind wander a bit? You got one man of faith here. Alan says no. Let your mind wander a bit. Do you feel any different? You're going to go tell anybody now. You're going to go consider things differently. You know? Are you a little more likely to count on that money now? The 15 that's coming because they gave you the 10. Or are you going to think, well, that's all I'm going to get. I better just run. You're going to think, this guy, you're going to go out. This guy gave me 10. And he says, if you come next week, you'll get 10 and you'll get 15. You know, it's a little different message, isn't it? The way you feel right, right now, hopefully, 
the way the difference in that feeling is the way that you need to feel, I think, about the fact of that Paul's talking. Because what's Paul talking about here in, in 15? He's doing all this arguing to bring up one thing, that the resurrection's real, that it happened. And that if you don't believe it, if you're not sure about it, and you, you're here, you're, you know, kind of living your life in, in this in-between time without a sure understanding of that, Paul makes a pretty strong statement. He says, you are the most pitied. The most pitied, he says. In fact, the way it's, the way it's worded, I wrote it down here, it's, it's actually more literally translated, um, miserable of humanity we are. Miserable. If you don't quite grasp what Paul's getting at here. And I think that this is the fork in the road for all of us. And I mean all of us at some point in our lives. This is, the, this is the place where we get to where we're either going to go this way or that way. Either we're going to say, this is true, this being, you know, God, the Bible, the message of the Bible, or we're going to go the route of random circumstances and all these other potential explanations. And sure, there are lots of questions surrounding going the way of, you know, God is real, God created the universe, God provided us his written word here, uh, Yeshua came, died. These, there's, a lot of, there's questions surrounding that, but... The overarching matter that's being discussed is the resurrection. And Paul's message to us today, I believe, Paul's message in this passage really, is that Yeshua will return and that you can count on it. And I don't think that, that I use that word count deliberately, ambiguously, because you can count on it, but also with this idea of what first fruits is all about, and this idea of counting, this in-between time. And you know, just as many Jewish people around the world as we speak right now, are involved in counting the Omer during this, uh, this Feast of First Fruits. We see a picture here, uh, and this is just a small picture. When we look at the festivals, we're not going to teach about all the festivals today uh, in the times of the Lord, but this is um, this Yeshua himself, as Paul is describing here, is really the fulfillment, the direct fulfillment of that feast, this idea that God has provided this, and he's going to provide this much more and more fullness at the end of the season. And we don't know when the end of the season is for us. Um, but that's the base. This is really the basis. I mean, the basis for your faith. Hopefully, the fact that you're sitting here under, believing that, you know, if I believe, I'm believing that that the that Yeshua is a real person, that he lived, and that he died, and that he physically rose. And if those things aren't solid in your mind, and you don't fully understand all the, the you know, there's always an element of faith in there. But the, if you don't understand the historical explanations, the historical evidence, and so forth, it's important that you do because that. Those things, understanding those things and understanding that Yeshua will return, that you can count on it, that is that down payment. For those of you that it made a difference to, having that 10 grand in hand, that is the down payment. When you make a down payment on something, if that down payment turns out to be, you know, you go to buy a house and you give them your whatever percent, and if it turns out that your check bounces or whatever the case is, the funds aren't there, guess what? Deal's off, right? And it's the same with the resurrection. If we don't understand that, we don't understand the idea that Yeshua is the first fruits, meaning that there is more to come, then the deal's off, you know? That's the power of your faith. So if you're, if you're here today and you, and you say, you know, I do, I do believe that. I do believe Yeshua is the first fruits. Maybe I didn't understand the, the full picture, but I understand that, that he, you know, he rose first and that ensures that I will physically raise as well, either before he comes back or when he comes back. I want to ask you to consider, um, if, if you do believe that, how have you been using that knowledge? In what way has it made a difference in your life? In what way has it, has it 
giving you any power? In what way does it uh, cause you to get excited? Just like maybe that $10,000 in your hand caused you to be excited. And, and, and in what way does it cause you to go and tell someone else about it even? Or are you kind of practically, in a practical sense, living the way Paul mentions as somebody who's, you know, really just miserable? most miserable of humanity, just hoping for some event in the future that's coming. And if you're here today and you're not really sure about all that stuff, that's okay too. I wasn't for a long time. I wasn't sure about anything. People would read, they would quote the Bible to me and I'd say, yeah, but that's the Bible. What's that got to do with anything? You know, let alone you tell me to believe in Yeshua and so forth. Well, if you're in that position today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask or suggest or encourage you that you ask God to show you. You know, say, God, show me. Is this all, is any of this true? You know, am I, <laughs> are all these people that I see in, in the world, I mean, believers in Yeshua all over the world, we've got seminaries that teach these things. Are, are these people just deluded? Are they crazy? Um, now, granted, are, are there, there are places that teach you how to live nice and do good things and take care of the poor and, you know, go to foreign countries and give justice. I mean, is, is that what they're all about? I mean, and that's part of it. But the truth is, you know, you ask, you know, is, is, that, uh, is that the way it is? Or are these people, are they basing their life on an event, an actual thing that happened? Or is it just sort of a nice way of life? And I ask you to a- ask God that. So, you know, is, is, are they crazy? Or am I crazy? Or am I, am I missing something? And if I'm missing something, please show me if I'm missing something, if I'm misled. And God says he'll answer you. He says, he says to uh, ask and you shall receive. He says, seek. He's calling, calling Steve right now to tell him the answer. <laughs> he says, ask, you shall receive. Seek, you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened to you. So again, if you're, if you're here and you, you believe that stuff, how are, you, how are you living with it? How are you living practically with it? And if you don't, ask God to show you, to get on the path to, to understand a little more. Now, why is it these people believe? Why is it that Paul is so solid? When Paul says... He gives this whole argument about if this, if that, if the other, then you're miserable. And he says, but. And then Tracy said it in verse 20. I heard her say it in the tree. It's a very strong, uh, what do they call it, adversative. We've talked about it before. He says, yeah, all this, if all this were true and if people don't raise, then, but. He says, in fact, Messiah has been raised from the dead. That word has been, even in English, it gets the idea that something that happened and that continues. But again, I want to, I want to encourage you, if you, whatever camp you're in there, maybe you're somewhere in between, in either, either camp, ask the Lord to, to speak with you again about either how you've been, you've been operating with this information or uh, to show you some more depth to the information, to show you really to understand that resurrection and, and just how is Yeshua your first fruits. The resurrection gives us hope, but the same uh, scripture says that the power that raised Yeshua, that, that dynamited him from the dead, is at work in us. And part of reality, part of what I find so sad for all of us, is that we don't understand that. We don't understand the power of the Ruach that is resonant, that is living in us. Um, So consequently, we live like practical atheists. 
In other words, we are told and we expect then to do everything in our, uh, by ourselves, by our own power, by our own wisdom. And we don't understand that the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Yeshua from the dead is available in us. And so because of that, we huff and puff and we carry an 800-pound gorilla on our back uh, trying to live for God, trying to do things, um, ignoring the fact that we, as Rabbi David mentioned, we have the down payment, and the down payment is in the presence and the activity of the Spirit of God who is alive and well and energizing and driving us, um, driving our engine. But more often than not, we don't get it. And so because of that, we labor and labor and labor, and we forget that the real success in our life comes as we learn to understand that God is working and as we learn to get behind him and let him do them the big stuff and then just kind of follow along behind him rather than feel like we have to make it happen the book of Hebrews talks about laboring to enter into God's rest. Why does it? Why do we have to labor? Bec simply because we are used to thinking that unless we make things happen, nothing would happen in our life. Completely forgetting the fact that the Spirit of God, operating with the same power that drove Yeshua, raised Yeshua from the dead is alive and active with us. And it is a paradigm shift. It's, it's complete change in, in, in how we view life. But the resurrection, the first fruits that we have, means that we are grateful for what God has done and we are expecting Him, Him to do more, more stuff in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and thank you for the first fruits of the resurrection, for the first fruits of the presence and action of your Ruach, your spirit within us. Lord God, forgive us when we buy the foolish lie that we have to do it, that we have to make things happen, that unless we do, that nothing will get done. Lord God, teach us how to repent, how to move away from that. Teach us, Lord God, how to firmly depend on you, Lord God, for your action, your redemptive work, in us and your redemptive work through us. We thank you, Lord God, for this practical truth of the resurrection today and in the future in our life, Lord. Open our eyes, Lord, to see that. Give us, Lord God, 
give it to us, Lord, in living color, in, in, in multiple dimensions, Lord, so that we get it and grab our arms around it and uh, grab it, Lord, with both hands and both feet and live accordingly, Lord. We're tired of living like practical atheists, Lord. We don't want to be there. Teach us, Lord, to, to live by the power of of the resurrection by the power of your spirit at work in us. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.